0: Well, church, if you would open to Judges, uh, the book of Judges, chapter 16. Uh, We have studied Samson two weeks ago, and we're going to pick back up for the next two weeks with Samson. Um, I'm just going to read a small portion of this. I ask you all to read uh, chapter 14, 15, and 16, because we would not have time to read all of that uh, and have a sermon. And so... I just want to read one little section here. If you'll go to Judges 16 and start in verse 20, you'll remember Delilah and Samson. Delilah is wearing him down. And it says in verse 20, she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And so, Father, we come to you because this is your word, and we believe your spirit is the teacher, and we need counsel. He is the helper. He is the counselor, the paraclete, Lord. We ask you send him with great power to teach us, to instruct our hearts, our minds, uh, especially regarding besetting sins and addictions. Give us understanding, Lord, so that we can be free because You have made us free in Your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, this is our um, third, fourth week uh, fourth week in the series on um, common problems. And uh, what we're doing in this is looking at these Old Testament biblical narratives, these uh, different characters from the Old Testament, and seeing that they're are 3,000-year-old problems are actually uh, just new uh, psychologized names placed on on our same problems that we have now. There's really nothing new under the sun. And so we're going to look at anger issues going forward. We'll look at some issues with purity, suicidal depression, PTSD. Uh, We'll get into marriage and parenting issues um, going forward. And and what I want to do, I was saying to a few of the men... Uh, I think it was two weeks ago now, teaching these Old Testament narratives is actually very easy if we know the story. So if we're familiar with the story, the characters, we have this collective shared knowledge and you don't have to spend as much time reading it and explaining all of the basic details. You, you get to build out uh, the application, the, the theological implications uh, of what's there. It's very easy. But if we if we come at a passage that we're not familiar with, Uh, then we have to spend all of our time just telling the story. um, And we don't have much time left to expound upon it or say much about it. And so that's why I wanted to linger on Samson for a few weeks because I want to press down into some issues and I don't want to take all of our time up telling the story. And So I'm assuming that there's some uh, measure of knowledge of Samson and uh, I want to linger with him uh, for a minute. Uh, We looked at him last time, you'll remember, as a narcissist. And as a complex character. And then this week I want to build on that and, and look at uh, the addictions that hindered him. And, I, and, and why I say hindered uh, is, is important because addictions aren't a problem if you don't have a purpose in your life. Like if you're just on the earth to live for yourself, then addictions really aren't a problem. Um, but they hinder you if you have a specific purpose in life. And Samson did have a specific purpose. You'll remember uh, that the angel of the Lord came to Samson's parents in Judges thirteen, uh, verse five, and said, "You will have a son, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines." So that's the promise, and that's the mission of his life. That the pre-incarnate Christ came to them and didn't say he might deliver, or if he's not a very sinful guy, then he he may get this done. It says he shall deliver. This will happen. And the burden of proof is on anyone who said he didn't do that. To prove that he didn't do it. Because the angel of the Lord said he will do it. And, um, and so, did he or did he not? Uh, deliver Israel from the Philistines or begin to. And it really depends on who you ask that question to, what answer they would give you. So if you go to a lot of the modern uh, commentaries, they are going to tell you that Samson is a very, very sinful man. You're, you're going to struggle to find anything good or redeemable that he actually did. That Somehow he made it into heaven, you know, because Hebrews 11 said he did. That's the modern commentators, generally speaking. Uh, whereas you go to some of the older commentaries and you struggle to find anything sinful about Samson. He's painted in almost a purely righteous uh, light, and he's seen as this heroic person that we should emulate and that is a very Christocentric centric person um, in, in Scripture. And so what I want to argue for a few moments here is two things. One, that Samson did fulfill what the angel of the Lord said he would fulfill. That he did. Um, When the angel said he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines, I believe he actually did that. Secondly, I want to argue that because of his addictions, he accomplished a tiny fraction of what he could have accomplished. Um, Here's what we know about Samson. His name means little son. S-U-N. Little sun, a dim light, which is interesting because he's a Nazarite like John the Baptist. And he ate even honey in the wilderness like John the Baptist. Remember what Jesus called John the Baptist? A bright shining light. And here we have another Nazarite who's a dim light, who's a very little sun. And I think that is due to his addictions. Now, I do think that he accomplished much good, and I'm just going to quickly paint a good light on Samson, I won't build this out, but a few weeks ago we, uh, we talked about how he married a Philistine wife, um, and we would immediately go, well that was sinful, but it does say in the text that that was to create a strategic alliance with the Philistines. He was seeking an opportunity to take them down. And so there was some sort of righteous motive, even with that sinful action. Uh, Numerous instances where it shows uh, Samson's attacks on the Philistine, who was it that was empowering him to make these attacks? It was the Spirit of the Lord that was empowering him uh, to do what he did. After he was exhausted, after one of the battles, he prays, oh Lord, I'm thirsty, give me a drink. God gives him a drink from a rock, uh, gives him a drink of water, and here's what Comes out of his mouth. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. That's, I mean, unless you just want to read Samson in the worst light possible and not believe what he's saying, he's giving glory to God for the victory. And then this one is very interesting. In uh, chapter 16, verse 1, it says he went to, or it, the ESV says he went into the Philistine uh, prostitute. Went into. That's the ESV. Some of the other translations, because you can render it this way, say he went to the Philistine uh, prostitute. Went to. Which would be like the, the, the spies with Rahab who went to. Not for any immoral reason, but as a military strategy to get behind the walls of the gate, they went to Rahab, the prostitute, before they took down Jericho. And you could read it that way, that Samson is actually going to this prostitute, not for any sort of immoral reason, but as a military strategy to get into this Philistine stronghold. And then what does he do right after that? He stays up till midnight in the house of the prostitute. uh, And then when they all surround it, he goes out, grabs the gates of the city, which are buried deep, about two-story Uh, two stories high, huge gates, grabs the gates of the city, carries them 40 miles uphill, and puts them in another uh, Philistine city to mock the Philistines. It's a very very strange thing um, that's happening there. And then we know the very final sacrificial act of of Samson um, to push over the two pillars and take down the Philistines everybody recognizes that that was a righteous thing for him to do. Now, why do I say all of this? Because I'm arguing um, that Samson did what the angel of the Lord said he would do. He began to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He began to do that. Now look, here's what it doesn't say. That he did it with a pure heart doesn't say his motives were good. It doesn't say he was a sinless man. It just said he began to deliver the, Philist- or the Israel from the Philistines. And I mentioned this two weeks ago. He, God isn't hindered by Samson's sin. God doesn't have to work around Samson's sin to accomplish his purposes for Israel. God actually works through Samson's sins to accomplish his purposes for Israel. Somehow, without God being guilty for sin, or tempting Samson to sin, um, or anyone sinning but Samson, James 1 says that he, was, he sinned because he was lured and enticed by his own desires. And so I believe Samson did fulfill his mission um, by faith, Hebrews 11 says he did, and he, uh, but he didn't do it the way he could have Uh, Because of his addictions, he was hindered uh, by those addictions. And I think what I want you to think right now is apply it to yourself. Could that also be true of me? Could there be a sense in which I could be doing more for Christ and his kingdom? If not for this besetting sin. And the answer that I would want to tell you is yes. That is a correct way to think you could accomplish more for Christ if not for sin in your life, especially addictive sins. It is possible to squander your anointing, to grieve the Spirit in your life so that you accomplish less than you would have accomplished otherwise. And so here's the aim. I want to look at Samson for a moment and I want to give six characteristics of an addict. Someone with an addiction. I want to pull those from his life, from the text, And then I want to come at the end and give some hope and some help to those who are struggling uh, with addiction. And, And let me be clear about addiction. I don't believe a Christian can be truly addicted in the sense that they're fully enslaved to their sin. Galatians 5 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So to Christians, he says, You're free. But don't go and submit yourself to slavery, to addiction, you free people, right? That's the way that a Christian deals with addiction. We're not enslaved, so don't act like you are in the daily uh, decisions of your life. So let me, let me unpack this, uh, six things quickly. Number one, addictions come from nature and nurture. That's the old question psychologists love to ask, right? Is it nature or is it nurture? Which one uh, breeds an addiction? Which one gives us uh, an addict? Is it uh, those natural or biological um, uh, predispositions in that person they're born with? Or is it some sort of uh, early childhood development cultural uh, influences of that person that that create the addict which is it and I think the Bible would tell us it's both we are born into what sin we are born of the sinful nature uh, Samson was given a sinful nature by his parents at birth they loved him but they ruined him spiritually he, he came into the world predisposed for sin and for addictions as well, uh, his parents loved him, and they raised him as a Nazarite. So he's hearing these Bible studies, I don't think, on the whole law of God. It says at this time in Israel, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So I don't think every Israelite has a copy of the Scriptures, and they're having family worship, and are going to church services weekly. Right? This isn't happening in Israel at that time. But the angel did say, teach him the Nazarite vow. And I believe his parents, from what we have in the text, were diligent to say, don't drink alcohol, don't get a haircut, uh, don't go around dead bodies, right? The things that related to the Nazarite vow, he was catechized in those from an early age. Guys, the way that we're taught from an early age should, uh, forms us very much so. I mean, if you grow up in a neighborhood where the most respected people in the neighborhood are drug addicts, that's going to affect how you Think about life and approach life. Um, I heard someone say recently that your average 12-year-old boy with a phone and 15 minutes of privacy can see more unclothed women than the wealthiest king in any ancient land. You think that might contribute to an addiction? Yes. Yes. Now, someone may say, well, Samson, is he a victim of his parents or of that dark time in Israel in which he lived? And I would say, no, he's not because of the second point. Number two, addictions are formed by choosing to follow our desires. So nobody becomes an alcoholic because you sit down and you go, you know what? Alcohol dependency seems like a good, you know, I, I, I think I would like to 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 experience that. Um, No, you're, you're coping with something. You're, you're, you're trying to remove some feeling and the the alcohol helps. The, the substance helps. Nobody becomes morbidly obese or addicted to food because they'd say, I'd rather be large than small. I'd rather hurt. I'd rather, you know, uh, shorten my span of life. Nobody reasons this stuff out. You just go, I like the taste of food and I don't like being hungry. I don't like the feeling of hunger. I like food and Therefore, you get addicted. But it's feelings-based. Nobody gets addicted to prescription drugs because they say, I would like to erode the trust in all my relationships. Nobody does this stuff. You get get an injury and you get prescribed from a doctor and you begin to take them and they feel good. Right? This is how... Addictions are formed by wanting something, by a feeling, by a pleasure, by a comfort, by an attempt to escape something hard. Nobody just logically goes, I'd like to enslave myself to this thing that will eventually kill me. It's not how it works. Samson starts his addiction in chapter 14, verse 1 like this. Samson went to Timnah." What was Timna? Remember, it's, it means forbidden. It's the forbidden city because he, it says, saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. So here's a man raised in a godly home from birth, devoted to God. His parents are saying, you were set apart for God, Samson. So we can't bl- blame his upbringing or the devil. It says he saw what was in Timna. He made the choice. He wanted to go to that forbidden place. Verse 1 says, He saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then verse 2, He told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now listen to the sense of entitlement. We talked about narcissism. It's there early in Samson. And they say, what about uh, an Israelite? Why not someone from our own people? And he said, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And that's how dictions start. The desire of the eyes, I want this thing. And here's how they deepen. Look at our third point. Addicts begin to manipulate and use people and find enablers. They begin to manipulate, use people and find enablers. Look at how he's speaking to his parents regarding the Philistine woman that they eventually help him get. Verse 5 says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. He worked him down. He, he knew how to manipulate and get what he wanted, and he got his parents to agree with him to go to this forbidden place and do the very thing he shouldn't have done. Parents, let me just say, Do not let your kids get good at this. Do not let your kids get good at working you over to get that thing they want. You might be setting them up for an addiction later. You know what's good for your children and what's not good for them. Don't let them work you down as Samson worked his parents down. Ed Welch, uh, he wrote a really good book on addictions. I'll actually post this later because I'm going to reference this a few times. It's probably the best book on addiction Um, he said many, many addictions are all about using others. Sexual addictions are all about using or objectifying other people. And so what we see here is this obsessive love for self that Samson has and this lack of love for his parents. So he brings honey to them, and you go, well, see, he does love his parents. He's given them some dessert. He found a dead lion, and he pulled some honey out of the lion, and now he's bringing it to his parents. He loves his parents. No, he doesn't. That's a dead carcass. Remember what the Nazarite vow was? You're not allowed to be around dead things. So Samson is not only breaking the Nazarite vow, but the angel of the Lord told his parents not to break the Nazarite vow, it's likely they're still keeping this as well and he's disregarding their vow to the Lord. I don't think he's loving them. I think he's doing what addicts do. You you want uh, to satiate your craving and you don't care who you affect in the process. This is the typical behavior for addicts. Their families are usually the ones who are hurt most. Those closest to them are usually the ones who suffer Most. Because all that matters is feeding the addiction. And so what do you do? You lie. Or, let's not call it a lie, right? Addicts don't call it a lie. Omitting information. What does it say repeatedly in this text? He did not tell them. He did not tell them. He did not tell them. Repeatedly. You can't sustain a sinful addiction without repeated lies. It's repeated lies. Truth tellers don't stay addicted. You can't, if you're always telling the truth. It's lies. And Samson learns it early. Verse 10, it says, uh, his father, that's his primary enabler, went down to the woman. So here's Samson and his father now going to do this. And Samson prepares a feast. So his dad's enabling his sin, his marriage to the Philistine, and now they're throwing a party with the Philistines. Instead of destroying the Philistines, which was God's call, they're now partying with the Philistines. He's learned to manipulate his parents, and now he's going to, at this party, begin to manipulate others. Uh, This is no victim of his upbringing. He is an addict. And life is a game. Which leads to number four. Addicts enjoy the adrenaline rush and the excitement of playing with their addiction or sin and escaping unharmed. They often uh, aren't just addicted to a particular substance or behavior, but also the excitement, the thrill, the adrenaline of trying not to get caught. We'll see that with Delilah later. But here he's parting with those he's commanded to destroy. He's not moving them out of the land. He's moving into the land with them. He's playing with the in- enemy. He's gambling with his life. What are these riddles at this party? You know, and we don't know. I mean, he's at a Philistine party for, for uh, four days, three days, up until it says he was there for three days Uh, When they came to uh, his wife at this time, I don't know if he's drinking. He's not supposed to as a Nazarite. He's not supposed to have any strong drink, but he's at a Philistine party for three days. It's unlikely that he's sober. You know, certainly no one else around him was, um, but the text doesn't tell us. But look at verse 15. Uh, Those at the party come to his wife and say, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. There's an incentive. <laughs> Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And listen to this. Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You, you don't love me. You've you put a riddle to my people and you haven't told me what it is. And he said to her, I haven't even told my father or mother. Shall I tell you? And she wept before him for seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. Side note on this. Um, This is emotional blackmail. This is the weaponization of emotion that Samson's wife is doing to him. And ladies, just hear me out. Okay, this is dangerous uh, to bring into a marriage. Verse 17 says, she wept before him for seven days. For seven days, she pressed him hard. What does the Proverbs call that? There's a word for it. It starts with an N. Nagging. Nagging. Okay, It compares it to a dripping faucet. Drip, 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 drip. One or two drips isn't bad. Dripping and dripping and dripping for seven days begins to get annoying to the point where it says the husband goes to the corner of the rooftop to escape the nagging wife. She's weeping, emotionally coercing him, wearing him down for seven days. And look, we need to give Samson some credit here. That's impressive. (laughs) <laughs> that he endured this for seven days. Most men can't endure this for seven minutes, much less seven days. And he eventually gave in. And, and look, this isn't a marriage sermon, but I, I, Samson is being emotionally manipulated and coerced by his wife. And we have a lot of godly women here, and I do not judge your motives at all. I don't think any godly Christian woman here wants to do this to your husband. I don't think you do. But we need to be very careful about the power of emotion to win an argument because it's an automatic win. There's no way Samson could win this seven days of her weeping. He finally gave in, as always is the case. When emotion is brought in, do you see the power of this? It's worth noticing. And by the way, it's, maybe it's worth saying as well, she probably didn't learn this in the marriage. She probably learned this with her father. And so fathers, be careful about how you let your daughters manipulate you into whatever they're wanting. It's worth gaining some wisdom here. Number five. Number five, sexual addictions. And let's call it that at this point. Uh, are almost always connected to anger. Now listen, sexual addictions are almost always connected to anger. In this story, three times, every time he's immoral with a woman, it's followed by anger. Every time, the connection happens. And I'm not just pulling that simply from this text. Paul seems to connect the two. Three times in his epistles, he connects... Sexual sin and anger. So in Ephesians 4, he says, put away sensuality and impurity, and then he, he, he talks about sexual sin, and then he goes into anger, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, be put away from you, along with all malice. Romans 13, he, he gives a similar list. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, And these you two once walked when you were living in them. Now you must put them all away. Then it goes into anger, wrath, malice, slander. Guys, there is a connection between sexual sin and anger. And look, I I submit to you that very often where you find a man who's given over to anger, especially outbursts of anger, you will very often find someone dealing with much sexual sin. It's very closely connected. Unfortunately, uh, many times the anger isn't even about the other person. It's anger at themselves, and it gets lashed out at the other person, which is the case with Samson as well. So he does the revenge killing of 30 at Ashkelon. That's one of the five major Philistine cities uh, after an interaction with a woman. Uh, when he can't have his Philistine wife in rage, he grabs 300 foxes, lights them on fire to destroy the Philistine fields, and they retaliate, which drives him to anger again. He finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey, uh, which is a violation of the Nazarite vow again, uh, and then he takes out 1,000 Philistines. Every instance where there's a woman that he's immoral with, it's followed by an anger outburst. And so how does this this cycle of immorality followed by anger not only just continue but actually deepen and here's the here's what keeps this going deception deception which is the final point addictions continue because of deception Guys, why do people not break free from addictions? Is it because they didn't have an accountability partner? No. It's because of deception. It's that simple. Delilah in this story represents deception. Her name means night. You you can be deceived at night. It's harder to see clearly at night. Uh, There's more secrets at night. Deceptive, stealth, night, actually in this, uh, in this narrative, uh, night or Delilah, her name, is used seven times. We know seven significant in Scripture. It means completeness. So she represents complete night, complete deception. And he is a little son, remember? A little light. And so night is seeking to put out that little light that is Samson. So these are historical figures, but there's deep symbolism, which we'll get into more next week uh, in this. So Samson's with Delilah. He's not married to her, um, but he loves her, it says. And because he's with her, because he thinks he can play with temptation, he can enter into these seductive games, enjoy her beauty, and resist her continual urges, and not fall. That's where the deception is. He thinks he's spiritually stronger than he is. He thinks he's in control of his desires and he can stop at any point. He thinks he can lay on her lap and get away unharmed. Look at verse 19. It's one of the scariest two verses in the Bible. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to, listen to this, torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll just go out as the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. He thought he could just get up and get away like he always did. Guys, whatever deception that you've operated in until now, understand that God is holy. And you cannot continually play with what is unholy and go to what is unholy and give yourself to what is unholy. That spirit of Delilah and think you can just break free at any point. Delilah is strong. The deception is strong. And you give yourself over to that assuming you can break free. It's very naive. Samson had broken free many times. He thought he could do it again, but he went to sleep and he said, I'll break myself free again when he awoke. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Guys, I don't think that you can lose your salvation as a Christian. I don't believe the Scripture teaches that but I do believe that you can lose the nearness of God's presence. You can lose the nearness of God's presence. You can grieve His Spirit to the point where you eventually realize you you look down spiritually and you're like, why is my heart cold, calloused to sin? It feels like God is very far from me. Nothing should terrify us more than having our hair cut like that. You know, the, um, the father in Proverbs, in, in Proverbs 7, um, he tries to put the fear of God in his son regarding all of this. And listen to what he says. He says, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening. At the time of night, there's Delilah. At the time of night, in darkness, The woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And it says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. We're reading Proverbs right now, not Judges. It sounds like Delilah. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Listen, he does not know that it will cost him his life. That's called deception. Now you go, okay, if I'm deceived and that's why I keep going to this addiction over and over again, if deception is the root problem, what's the solution? Understanding is the solution. To begin to understand that you're walking into a death trap is the solution. To begin to see things for what they really are. You know, experts in addiction, they used to say this. They used to say, "Um, addicts can't get free from their addiction until they hit rock bottom. That used to be kind of the general uh, counsel regarding addictions. You'll never get free from an addiction until you hit rock bottom. Almost nobody says that now. Because after studying addictions for many more years, what people have realized is you can have a very good marriage on you know all things considered. Like on the surface, you can be very uh, normal in your job. You can uh, everything can look put in place, but there can be this one area of your life that's utterly ruining you, and you are at rock bottom on that. As you maintain and keep in order all these other things, and so what do you do if that's you if if you know there's a problem, is there hope for you before the STD? Before the job, get, you, you lose your job. Before life begins to crumble and the divorce papers are on the table. Could Is there hope for an addict before they hit rock bottom in every area? Before it ruins everything? And there is. And here's where it starts. You have to recognize your hair's been cut. You've grieved the Spirit. Your strength is gone. And then you have to remember this after Isaiah 40 says, young men stumble and fall, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who wait for the Lord. What did Samson do after being deceived with his haircut? His strength is gone. He waited for the Lord. And as he waited, and this is just, one old writer said this is the, one of the most pregnant sentences in marks of literary genius, that the cutting of the hair and the returning of the hair is, is absolutely brilliant here. There's nothing special about the hair, but it symbolizes spiritual strength. What if the Spirit of God that you've grieved comes back? Look at verse 22. The hair of his head began to grow again. What, what if that strength of God begins to come back? Is there hope for someone at that point? What if, what if God is not done with you? What if what has been cut off begins to grow back? You know, sin ruins everything. We know that. We think we're the exception. We think it won't happen in our life. But what if your hair's been cut? But what if it begins to grow back? What if the Spirit of God begins to restore you and renew you and strengthen you where you were once robbed of strength? Is there hope for you? There's hope. There's hope for Samson here because his strength Returned to him. And what did he do when he began to have his hair grow back? He sought help. This is the first time in his life he's ever sought help. He did everything alone before this. We don't see him with anybody else. He's always alone. And then he finally realized, I need help. And he doesn't turn to a great warrior. He finds even a young boy. And that young boy puts his hands against the pillars. Guys, some of you have... Some of you have never broken free because you've never sought help. And even when you feel restored and you begin moving in a good direction again, you still do it all alone. And you don't ask for the little boy to help you put your hands on the pillar. You don't ask for strength. Because why? You haven't found the perfect friend or the wisest counselor or someone who can relate perfectly to your exact circumstances. And so you keep it to yourself. Man, He, he was. Samson was humbled. When, when you're humbled, you'll take a young boy to help you out. You'll realize that God can use anyone to help you when you're really humbled. I mean, he got so blind he could finally see. He got so dead he could finally live. Something is happening in him he knew he needed help. And even more than from the boy, from the Lord. Look at verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O oh God, that I may avenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them. His right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell on the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So much to see here. We're going to come back at this, but let me just I want to end us with two things here. There, there's two significant things. They fall under one crucial thing for an addict to to understand breaking free from an addiction will only happen when there is a sacrificial death when there's a sacrificial death and I mean that in two ways first there must be a sacrificial death in you Jesus said repeatedly unless you die you will not live die to self Die to self. Romans 12.1 Offer your body as a living sacrifice of worship. You won't live and break free and live free without a death. You sacrifice yourself to God before you can live. Dying to self really is the path of true freedom from addiction. Go learn what that means. Go learn what that means. Secondly, we know that the ultimate victory over addictions isn't something we do, guys. We know this. The ultimate victory over addictions isn't something that we do. It's something that's been done for us. Christ says what? I came not for the righteous, but sinners, for addicts, for those who can't get free. For those who can't untangle themselves. That's who Christ came for. To lay down His life for addicts. For those enslaved and struggling with sin. Listen to Ed Welch in his book on addictions. He said, Liberation from addiction began in the ministry of Jesus. And it continues as we trust Him. Discover the many benefits of the cross and resurrection. And receive the Spirit of Jesus. As as we go to the table, if that is you, if you died with Christ, raised with Christ, in the path of overcoming addictions, finding your hope in Christ, the table will help with that. The table is for you. Please uh, come and join us. Uh, if you have not received Christ, um, then I would ask you to refrain In the bulletin, there are some prayers you can pray that will be meaningful. And I feel led to say this this morning. Please see me. See Pastor Kent. If you want prayer for something, uh, if the Lord has dealt with you in such a way that you want to receive Christ and His Spirit and gain true freedom over sin, uh, we would love to talk with you. Let's take a few moments and we'll pray. And we'll prepare ourselves to take the supper. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Son because, Lord, to put it very bluntly, we are all sinners. We just are. We may uh, have a hint of immorality. Maybe there's some righteous among us who there's only a hint. And others feel utterly enslaved. But God, all of it, there's only one cleanse. There's only one escape. There's only one liberation and it's in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Praise You, Jesus. We worship You. We trust Your death on our behalf. We thank You for Your Spirit You've given us so that we can live free because we are free. And so Lord, renew our minds. Strengthen us at the table. And as we go into this week, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.